Welcome to Any Given You. This show is about all things college football, and on it you will hear insights, analysis, discussion, predictions, and stories of any given topic from any given time, past, present, or future. We believe that the stats are great, but the stories are greater. And you should listen if you have a passion for the game and what makes it great. We're going to talk about touchdowns and touched lives. Come with us on a journey that extends beyond the field of play. We will talk wins, losses, and coachable moments learned on the football field and taken to the classroom, workforce, home, and even the battlefield. Division one to division none. Five-star recruits to walk-ons, it doesn't matter. If it's college football, it's worth the story. I'm your host, Michael Megan. U.S. Army Ranger and a former college football player, and more importantly, a lifelong fan of all things college football. Whether you are a casual fan, a fanatic, a coach, a player, or just a person who loves great stories, then huddle up and commit at Any Given You. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Any Given You podcast. As always, I'm your host, Michael Megan, and we have a very exciting show here for you today because it is win totals time. That is right, baby. We are closing in here on the month of August, which means we are going to be kicking off college football for the 2022 season. Before we get into today's content, I'd like to remind everybody that if you're enjoying the show, please get over to either Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating. And if you would be so kind, write us a review that helps boost the podcast and reach a, uh, you know, a bigger audience, a greater listenership, as we are wanting to grow the U crew here again by leaps and bounds in the 2022 season like we did last year to grow this college football community where we have a lot of fun uh, and, and just we, we love the sport here and I want to reach people who love the sport this fall. So please tell your friends, get over there and leave us a review. So SEC East win totals, we are going to be releasing you know, obviously win totals for all of our Power 5 conferences. If we have time, it's ambitious for sure, but we might sprinkle in a little bit of G5 action as well. We are absolutely going to include Notre Dame on one of the episodes. I'm not sure if we're going to lump them in with the ACC or the Big Ten, but we'll cross that road when we get there. Um, we are going to take it by division because going back and sort of editing myself last year or having a critique of myself last year, we just we had these very long sprawling episodes where we were going through the entire conference in one chunk and it didn't really allow me the time to sort of delve into each one of the teams because we had to start speeding up there at the end. So wanted to make sure that we break it into divisions to make this entire thing a little more palatable here for this season. So we're going to start with the SEC East, and uh, we're going to get right into it with the reigning, defending national champion Georgia Bulldogs. Caesars Sportsbook currently has this team at 10.5 wins, and for me, this is an easy over play. Uh, taking a look at the schedule this year, obviously everybody knows on September the 3rd, they square off against the Oregon Ducks in neutral site in Atlanta. Uh, they have non-cons against Samford University. That's not Stanford. That is Samford of Alabama uh, and Kent State as well. They also have a road trip to South Carolina. They have road trip to Mississippi State. And uh, obviously they square off against Georgia Tech as well in their annual rivalry, uh, clean old-fashioned hate at the end of the year. And prior to that, they also have a much-anticipated trip to Lexington, Kentucky to take on the Kentucky Wildcats on November the 19th, a game that sold out in about five minutes. For me, this is very much an overplay, as I believe that Georgia does not lose more than a single game, and I would not be in the least bit surprised to see them run the table and go undefeated for a second consecutive regular season. Now, I understand that that is easier said than done, but this 2022 Georgia squad in many ways is just as talented, if not more talented at certain spots 
as the 2021 team. And if we take a look at the roster and what may happen, what I believe will happen with this team, I believe we're going to see an uptick in the offensive production, the offensive side of the ball, as Georgia has one of the finest offensive lines in the entire country. If you really think about it, returning four out of five starters as guard Tate Ratledge comes back healthy into the rotation this year uh, to pair up with guys like Shedrick Van Pran and Broderick Jones, who are outstanding you know, offensive linemen that really proved their mettle last year. They have a very deep backfield with Kendall Milton, Kenny McIntosh, and Dejon Edwards. All three of those backs are absolute weapons. Um, they have a receiving core that is the deepest that I think it has ever been under the Kirby Smart tenure, an absolutely disgustingly talented tight end room, and an experienced signal caller that has all the intangibles and played a lot better last year than people still for some reason don't want to give him credit. And that would be obviously Stetson Bennett, the little engine that could, the mailman himself, the two-star former walk-on that shocked the world and had his Disney moment last year. And so when you take a look at this offense, I think this is this year could be the 40-point Georgia offense that we've been waiting on. I'm excited about Todd Munkin. This is his third year. Him in the coordinator spot. I mean, he started in the 20, uh, the, the 2020 team that was absolutely tire fire, spit and glue offense. You saw what he was able to do last year as another year of continuity coming through, another year of development under the system. We saw Stetson Bennett really become sort of night and day. Uh, at the quarterback position, and we saw more open concepts. We saw more of an ability and a willingness to push the ball down the field with some really good personnel like Lad McConkey, A.D. Mitchell in year one. We would assume that their progression is going to take a step forward in year two. A healthy Dominic Blaylock. They have a Kyrus Jackson, a guy who's extremely experienced on that squad now, one of the leaders of the team in the receiving core. A healthy Arian Smith who brings another speed dynamic to Georgia's offense that they have not had uh, in, in a very long time, maybe if ever, with the ability for him to stretch the field. And then, and, and then the always talented backfield that's deep. So, uh, again, I believe that when you take a look at the field with this offense, with the collection of elite talent that they have, the, guy, the way they have recruited is no secret that Georgia has recruited out of their mind uh, to this program – and you take a look at the lay of the land in the SEC East, I just don't see where the losses are coming from. And even with their West draw matchups in Auburn, uh, Mississippi State, who I do believe Mississippi State, you know, will be a better team than some people may think, you know. But at the, at the end of the day, those teams, if Georgia come, shows up and plays to their standard, they do not lose. They do not lose to these teams. They don't lose to any of these teams. Uh, you know, even if even if the, they had an SEC East opponent that showed up on their best day. So I just don't see the losses for them. And everybody wants to talk about the defense. Well, let's talk about the defense. I feel like a lot of folks want to focus on what the defense has lost as opposed to what has stayed. And this year, the defense, we have three Smiths that I'm very, very excited about. You've got Nolan Smith, who plays the edge jack linebacker position for Georgia, a guy that I think really came into his own the second half of last year, and I'm expecting some very big things out of him this season. We've got Tyke Smith, the West Virginia transfer and former All-American cornerback who you know was injured all last year. So if he comes in and plays healthy and to the sort of standard that we've seen out of him before, he's definitely value added in that secondary. And then staying in the Georgia secondary, you've got Christopher Smith at safety. Uh, that adds a lot of experience and continuity there on the back end. Not only that, but Georgia has arguably the best defensive lineman in the entire country in Jalen Carter, and I believe he will play to that billing. I'm very much prophesying that he has an All-American type season. I could see him being a Nagurski, Outland, Bednarik caliber winning player uh, and, and really anchoring that defensive line. They've also got guys like Robert Beal, who are returning to be the other bookend edge guy across from Nolan Smith. Make no mistake about it, this is still going to be a very stout defensive unit. And I didn't even mention Keely Ringo, you know, so he returns, obviously, and he's an outstanding corner. Potential trouble spots we could see for them. Obviously, you have the neutral site game, and I say that almost tongue-in-cheek because it is in Atlanta, but... They are squaring off against Oregon, Pac-12 opponent, 
but still a very talented roster for Oregon in terms of the you know what how they have recruited there over the last couple of years. Dan Lanning coming to town, obviously understanding a little bit about Georgia's tendencies. It could potentially end up being a, a, an exciting matchup for, I would think, at least a, maybe a couple of quarters until the depth and experience and just the overall overwhelming talent and strength of this Georgia roster sort of overpowers Oregon. At South Carolina, a much upgraded roster this year in a raucous home environment. Early in the year, maybe let's say that Georgia doesn't quite gel the way that they're supposed to. Maybe some of that, a little bit of that experience lost on the defensive side of the ball does cost them a, a time or two. We could see a potential speed bump there. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that South Carolina has taken a proverbial dump in the punch bowl. We also have Tennessee, uh, again, a very talented and explosive offense in their own right. Uh, Hinden Hooker coming in, I think he's one of the better quarterbacks in the SEC without a doubt, and I think that could be a potentially tough matchup for Georgia, but they do get them at home. And then at Mississippi State, I actually have circled as probably the toughest SEC contest that Georgia's going to see all year because I am actually pretty high on this Mississippi State team with what they're going to be able to do in their front seven. Their offensive attack uh, can be tough, and when these – teams actually squared off the last time in 2020, Mississippi State actually found a lot of offensive success against that Georgia defense. Uh, it was very difficult and tricky for Georgia to defend. I feel like there's been a lot of hype and much ado spoken about this Kentucky matchup as Georgia will take that trip to Lexington and Kentucky fans like to brag that this sold out in five minutes. I wouldn't be surprised if literally half the stadium was still Georgia. <laughs> These were Georgia fans that bought up those tickets. I mean, Georgia travels as well, if not better, than any fan base in the country. Uh, they are elite in filling up stadiums, uh, especially on road games. They, they plant that Georgia flag wherever they go, and I just don't see it. I don't see it for Kentucky. The way Kentucky is built is not – they're not built to beat Georgia – you're not going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Georgia at this point. You're not going to try to out-muscle them and out-physical them. You have to basically out-finesse them at this point. And Kentucky is just one of those teams that under Mark Stoops, they are who they are. They want to be physical. They want to control the line of scrimmage. And that's going to win you a lot of games, but it is not going to win you games against teams like Georgia who do that at with better recruits at in a more elite level and has been their bread and butter for a long time. So I've got the dogs winning 11, if not 12 games. I'm actually leaning towards an undefeated regular season for Georgia. So I am going to go ahead and get lean towards the over 10 and a half for the dogs. Next up on the docket, we have the Kentucky Wildcats who Caesars has at eight and a half wins and they are picked right now to finish second in the SEC East. They did receive four first-place finish in the SEC East votes. As a lot of people are very high on this Kentucky team coming into this year, and quarterback Will Levis is getting a whole lot of love right now. I think that has to do more with the NFL scouting reports that have come out. And I always caution people to take those with a grain of salt because much like in the same vein of what college coaches do with recruiting high school players, you recruit players off of their potential to be very good at the level that you are recruiting them to. So you're not necessarily looking for guys in high school that are necessarily going to put up the best numbers. It's what is the potential ceiling for that player to come in and play at a high level at the college level. You're not trying to recruit the best high school player. You're trying to re recruit the best potential college product. And I think the NFL takes that same approach with drafting, obviously, players from the college level. They're taking a look at the size. They love the size. They love the frame. They love the arm strength. And with a pro-style system and pro-style quarterback development, they like Will Levis. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to blow the doors off the hinges with Kentucky, especially with the style of offense that they're going to be running this season. And coming into this year, Kentucky has some concerns on the offensive side of the ball. First off, offensive coordinator Liam Cohen 
who returned to the Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams is gone, right? And star wide receiver Wandale Robinson, who was so integral to that Kentucky uh, offensive success last year, is also off, right? He broke the Kentucky single season records for catches and receiving yards in his one season as a Wildcat. Now, head coach Mark Stoops hopes to build on Cohen's success and returning balance to Kentucky's offense this year. He's going to replace him with the former San Francisco 49ers quarterbacks coach, Rick Scarangello. So if you are interested or trying to glean what this Kentucky offense might look like, you should probably start watching a little bit of tape of the 49ers. And you're going to see probably double tight end sets. You're probably going to see the use of a fullback, some play action boot type stuff, tossing the ball to the backs out of the backfield, kind of piecing together that offensive attack that is also going to be based around a run balanced style attack. You're, it's probably going to look probably something similar to sort of what Utah does, right? And replacing Robinson, I, I can't stress that enough. That's going to be really difficult. They do pick up wide receiver transfer Tavion Robinson from Virginia Tech. Javon Baker was slated to join the team, but instead the transfer from Alabama will go somewhere else. And uh, Robinson is unlikely to duplicate what Wandale Robinson, you know, was able to do. But between him coming in and then a good group of freshmen wide receivers led by four-star prospects Barry and Brown and Dane Key, the passing game should be a little bit less reliant on the one receiver and then maybe the sum of the parts will be you know enough to have a little bit of an uptick in the passing game but that remains to be seen they also have a pretty good tight end in keaton upshaw who could be a good bailout guy in mid-range passes on third down but that big blue wall for kentucky the strength the lifeblood of the offense from the last couple of years has a lot to replace as they have said goodbye to three of those guys up front. Uh, and when you are a team like Kentucky that it starts up front for you, and especially with a run-balanced attack like they're going to be wanting to play this year, especially with Chris Rodriguez, the SEC's leading rusher returning, replacing three out of five up there is going to be a tough ask for this Kentucky team. Their entire offense is predicated on the ability to control the line of scrimmage and replacing three out of five offensive linemen, that is a tall task to do, especially when you're not playing with all five-star recruits waiting in the winds to just sort of reload and plug in. Kentucky is not a team that sort of reloads in the classic sense of, you know, they're going to reload to – fight for SEC championships and win 10-plus games, they they reload to win seven to nine games a year. Uh, the recent success under Mark Stoops can't be stressed enough. I mean, it was four decades before they had a 10-win season, and he's produced two of them in the last four years. So a tip of the cap to Mark Stoops. I mean, I think he's an outstanding ball coach, and I think he will find ways to – come up with solid game plans they're going to be able to play to their strengths I just don't know how strong their strengths are going to be especially when this has been a team that has been so reliant on offensive line play defensively let's talk about the Cats for a minute coach Stoops definitely benefited from a crop of defenders that have bailed them out this year by electing to return with safety Terrell Ajon and linebackers DeAndre Square Jacquez Jones and Jordan Wright they are using their extra year of eligibility to return to the Wildcats, and still at least four new starters will be needed on a unit that it's going to depend on some of the highest rated recruits in the program to really step up and move into these new roles. Josh Paschal, Marquan McCall have moved on to the NFL, and it's time for a very highly anticipated defensive line class to step into the role, and that group is led by former five-star signee Justin Rogers at Noseguard, Octavius Oxendine, Trayvon Ribka, and Josiah Hayes. And all four, all, all of those uh, prospects are four or five-star. So definitely it was a strong blue chip uh, class there in 2020. Uh, the super senior linebackers will need to carry the, the load. It's not going to be alone. The, the secondary, they do have a, a decent secondary in terms of experience. 
And then with edge rusher J.J. Weaver and some promising inside linebackers like Trevin Wallace and Derek Jackson, the hope is that you know this this linebacker rotation for Kentucky will be really solid as they rotate them in in their three-four scheme. Now Kentucky's defense has been pretty solid over the last couple of years, but we have seen in games against their traditional stumbling blocks like Tennessee, uh, obviously Georgia, and when they play higher level competition, they still wind up kind of giving up the ghost there and not playing to the sort of level that you would expect when they're building the momentum with a lot of the wins that they're getting. Kentucky is a team to me that has been who they have been under the Mark Stoops era. They are a team that wins the games that they should win and they lose the games against the higher level competition, which is why I'm not super confident on this eight and a half. I am going to lean towards the under here because I feel like seven or eight wins is much more likely with this schedule when you take a look at it. They do have to go to the Swamp. They have to go to Ole Miss, which are going to be two tough games for them. Mississippi State, I think, could be an absolute nightmare for this team, especially with what they run defensively with the 3-4. You know, Ole Miss able to create matchup nightmares all over the field with Lane Kiffin you know, calling the shots there. I just don't think defensively they're set up very well to take on that opponent. Mississippi State, with the front seven that they have, with Kentucky replacing three out of five on that offensive line, this Mississippi State front seven I'm expecting is going to be pretty damn nasty. It's been something that has been very, you know, a lot of folks in Stark Vegas have been very excited about, as Mississippi State has turned out some monster defensive lines over the last couple of years for sure. Tennessee, we have already mentioned, that is the proverbial stumbling block for them. I don't think they beat Georgia. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and I would almost virtually lock that up as a win for Georgia because, again, as Kentucky tries to take the step towards playing the bigger boys, they just seem to fall flat most of the time. And then this Louisville team that they have, I know that they have to play them in Lexington, but it could be kind of a get-back revenge tour for Louisville. I think this Louisville team might even be a little bit better than a lot of folks anticipating and when you have a player you know the likes of Malik Cunningham there at quarterback for the Cardinals who can be a just an out he can take over the game if you let him do it I don't know I think they could be pretty sneaky good and Kentucky coming out of you know a pretty tough stretch there right before they face them I think that they could be ripe for an upset in that spot too so I'm gonna go ahead and lean the under eight and a half Uh, if this was sitting at seven I would be or even seven and a half I might be tempted to take the over but I think seven or eight wins is much more likely than going over eight and a half for this Kentucky squad next we're talking about the Tennessee Volunteers which has been the thorn in the side of Kentucky Caesars has these guys sitting at seven and a half wins so let's talk about it for a minute obviously they return one of the most highly anticipated and uh, very much hyped quarterback in Hendon Hooker. I think the hype is deserved because he did an outstanding job last year. I mean, he threw for 31 touchdowns, close to 3,000 yards, just three interceptions. So great job taking care of the ball in a Josh Heupel offense that was really explosive, very powerful, very good in the run game. And leading receiver Cedric Tillman is back after catching 64 passes for 1,081 yards and 12 scores. Brew McCoy, transfer from USC, will also come in to join the party. And tight ends Princeton Fant and Jacob Warren are solid mid-range targets. Uh, And Hooker shouldn't have a problem spreading the ball all around. Like I mentioned earlier, Tennessee was very solid in the run game last year. Now, they do lose their starting running back in Tyon Evans, who left for Louisville, but Jabari Small, a guy who actually ran for 792 yards and nine touchdowns, will look to step into the spot along with Jalen Wright, who also ran for 409 yards and four scores. And what really sticks out to me when you take a look at that stat line is the fact that they had a second and third team backs, uh, you know, their second team back put up first team numbers on some squads. So, uh, you know, again, very solid in the run game. However, the offensive line, 44 sacks given up last year. 
Now, I know some of that was inflated with playing like Alabama and Georgia on the schedule. They took a sledgehammer to their stat line as far as pass protection goes, but 3.4 sacks per game, that was the most in the SEC, and they have to keep Hendon Hooker standing this year and protected if they want to build on last year's success. Now, they do have talent up front. They have Darnell Wright, who is a pro prospect at right tackle. They have Cooper Mays, who's a solid center, brother of Cade Mays. Uh, Great size at at the guard spots as well. And if Jeremiah Crawford can hold his own at left tackle, I think the line will be solid and take a step forward uh, this year. I I believe that this Volunteers offense is going to be, again, at least as good, if not a little bit better than they were last season, especially with the signal caller that they have back there. And again, having the ability to run the ball helps your offense so much. When the defense, when you have to keep a defense honest, when a defense has to respect your run game and you just you don't drop back and throw it 60 times a game, you are making the defense have to play on multiple dimensions. And I think that is what was so that's really what really made this offense so successful last year. Not just the passing game, but the ability to run the ball. And if they can continue to do that and protect a little bit better, this Tennessee offense is going to be extremely dangerous and keep defensive coordinators up at night. Speaking of defense, let's talk about Tennessee's defense. Um, Not great. Also, not terrible. It was a very topsy-turvy kind of experience watching the Tennessee Volunteers last year who were actually one of the best teams in the nation at getting into the backfield. Defensive end Byron Young and linebacker Jeremy Banks both came up with 11 and a half tackles for loss. They have really good size up front with uh, 320-pound Amari Thomas. Uh, at nose, 290-pound Latrell Bumpfus, a veteran next to him. Uh, it'll be up to these guys to really set the tone up front. If you actually take a look back when they played Georgia last year, in Knoxville, there was a point in that game where it was it was pretty close. There was a it was sort of a, a a tipping moment. You weren't sure which way it was going to go, and Tennessee was having some defensive success at stymieing Georgia's run game, getting in the backfield, causing disruption, and everything else. The problem was the depth. Uh, Tennessee again didn't have the depth, which was something to be expected when you had the entire. Jeremy Pruitt situation, the huge exodus of all those players from the program, the big embarrassing sanctions. I mean, they I think they lost like 30 dudes uh, in total to the transfer portal as that whole ship kind of imploded. And they lost a lot of guys that would have been there. And if Tennessee had had some better depth and able to rotate bodies in, I'm not saying they would have beaten Georgia last year, but it would have been, I think, a closer match and a little more of a sweat fest. So coming into this year, let's see what happened you know, in the offseason as Josh Heupel has addressed these issues and they've continued to try to work on the depth for Tennessee. They do run a 4-2-5 alignment. Uh, there's plenty of depth in the back, uh, in the secondary to rotate in to that look. The secondary has a really good headhunter, or I should, maybe should, I shouldn't say headhunter with the targeting culture these days, but a, a good hard-hitting free safety in Trayvon Flowers. Uh, Theo Jackson will be missed for sure. Uh, from the position, but strong safety Jalen McCullough led the team with three picks along with 49 tackles last year, and the corner should be fine with some help coming in via the transfer portal. So we could see a slightly elevated defensive unit for the Volunteers to pair with this really powerful offense. So when you go back and you take a look at this seven and a half uh, win total that the Caesars books are putting out, I feel pretty confident in actually hitting the over with Tennessee here as I think eight wins is much more likely for this volunteer squad than going seven or a six and six. Uh, I think the floor for this Tennessee team coming into this next year is probably six and six. And that would be if, you know, if the injury bug bites, some crazy unforeseen thing happens, the, the bounce of ball plays don't go their way. 
I actually believe that this team is primed to have an eight or nine win season. But let's take a look at the schedule and uh, talk about it for a second. They open the season on September 1st against Ball State. I've got a win there. They then take a trip over to Pittsburgh, a team that actually returns quite a bit on the defensive side of the ball, but has lost Kenny Pickett and has lost Jordan Addison, a huge reason for Pitt's success last year. I've got that one as a solid toss-up. I might even lean Tennessee in that matchup as well. Then Akron, I have that as a win. Florida has to come to Knoxville. I'm not very high on the Gators this year. I'm not very confident that they'll be able to take them. So I could see this Tennessee squad starting off 4-0. The road trip to LSU I think will be harder than folks might anticipate. This LSU front seven I think could give Tennessee quite a bit of problems, especially for, again, that aforementioned offensive line unit from last year that gave up so many sacks. If they don't take that step forward, I think LSU could set up camp in their backfield in that game. Alabama coming to town. They haven't beat them in like 16 years. I don't see that changing this season. But then they get right with Tennessee Martin. I see that as a win, obviously. Kentucky comes to town, and I believe Tennessee will do what Tennessee does and beat Kentucky. Uh, then they take a trip to Athens. I have that as a loss for Tennessee. I think Georgia will handle business again. Missouri comes to town. I got that as a win. They go to South Carolina. I got them winning that one. And then the <laughs> rivalry game, if you want to call it that, against Vanderbilt, Tennessee will easily cruise to a win in that one. So if you total that up, you know, I'm looking at about nine wins, maybe if they don't show up and eat their Wheaties one other day uh, here on this schedule, I could see them dropping another one and getting to eight wins. But I think, like I said, if you're asking me at seven and a half, I think the juice is worth it to take the over on this one. Uh, as I think that eight wins or even nine wins is very likely for the Vols here in 2022. It really depends on whether or not the offense is at least as good as it was last year, which I'm expecting it will be. And if the defense can get right with limiting the explosive plays that killed them last year, they can continue the pressure up front and limit a few more of those explosive plays. This team wins eight or nine games, I think, easily with this schedule. Next up, coming in at seven and a half wins on the schedule is, or by the Caesars books anyway, is my favorite team, the Florida Gators. Everybody knows how much I love the Swamp Lizards. And coming into 2022, they have a new head man at the head coaching position in Billy Napier, a guy who was very successful at Louisiana, a guy that definitely knows how to coach and has done a I think a pretty good job this offseason before touching the X's and O's, making sure that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and this Florida roster's on their P's and Q's. Uh, it, this was a roster and a squad that under the Dan Mullen tenure left a lot to be desired in terms of, let's call it discipline, let's call it doing the little things right, let's call it composure. Uh, there was a lot of quit in this 2021 uh, Gators squad this last year. There was a lot of quit in the 2020 squad too, once they realized that they were not going to make a college football playoff uh, after losing the SEC championship game to Alabama. Again, a very spirited contest between the two teams, but again, the just the quit factor in the laydown was just something I don't think that the Florida fan base, the Florida administration took too kindly to. And coupled with subpar recruiting for Florida standards, it's not terrible recruiting when you look at the grand scheme of things, as Florida is still 50% above 50% on their blue chip ratio in recruiting over the last four years. But it wasn't acceptable. And so out with Dan Mullen, in with Billy Napier, a guy who I do believe, if given a long enough timetable, could have this team competing again. But here in 2022, there are a lot of concerns. Uh, let's talk about it. First off, everybody seems to be very high on quarterback Anthony Richardson, putting him as a top five SEC quarterback coming into this year, thinking that he's going to put up some like big statistical numbers and all this other stuff. 
And much in the same vein as I consider Will Levis, he may be a pro prospect that a lot of people are going to drool over. If this is a seven-on-seven camp, I would undoubtedly take Anthony Richardson. The guy has an absolute laser cannon for an arm. If you go watch TikToks, you might as well not even play the game because the dude throws like a 75-yard deep ball. It's just insane the arm talent he has on a six foot four, 237 pound frame. The athleticism a guy like that has, I mean, he if he has the right supporting cast around him, he could take over a game. The problem is with those 75 yard bombs he's throwing, uh, who is he throwing to? When you take a look at this Gators roster, last season, They offensively scored 53 touchdowns on the year. With returning offensive production, just 13 of those 53 touchdowns are back. So literally, when you take a look, like their leading receiver is Justin Shorter, 41 receptions for 550 yards and three scores. That's the high amongst the pass catchers coming into this year. You have Xavier Henderson. Uh, a former top 75 recruit by the 24-7 composite rankings, but he has just three scores in the last two seasons. Uh, they've Both of these receivers have struggled to get open downfield for whoever was playing quarterback, whether it was Richardson or Emory Jones. Uh, they have Trent Whittemore at slot receiver, but again, a guy who has had a lot of trouble staying healthy. Dejon Reynolds, a young guy, might be somebody who might emerge uh, for these guys. They've also picked up uh, the addition of Ricky Purcell, who was 48 catches in 2021 from Arizona State. They also have Keon Zipperer with 25 receptions in the last three years. What I'm getting at here is when you actually crunch all those numbers, that's really pedestrian. That's extremely pedestrian uh, passing attack from from the last year as opposed to what you saw in 2020 with that huge collection of receiving talent with guys like Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Toney and Trayvon Grimes. Those guys were all gone, and that's, again, last year when we were previewing Florida, I said that they were going to take on more of that style where they were going to have to run the ball because of all that exodus of talent, and along with all that exodus of talent, the talent behind them has not stepped up and played commensurate with what they were expected to do. Moving on to another position group, we have the offensive line. Now they do return three starters from last year, but again, Billy Napier felt like it was in his best interest to augment this line with Louisiana transfer in guard Osiris Torrance, and who is an experienced guy, but again, a Sunbelt caliber player coming in to this Florida roster to literally compete. And again, also in the running back position, they have back Nyquan Wright, who is poised to start, but again, injured most of the spring. And with the exodus of Demarcus Bowman from the program, also little used former five-star recruit Lorenzo Lingard, Billy Napier had to reach into that Louisiana bag and grab out freshman back Montrell Johnson, who stood out running for 838 yards and 12 scores in 2021 for the Raging Cajuns. My point on all of this is for an SEC roster, if you were feeling good about an SEC roster and what you were taking over, and not only from a talent perspective, but from a culture perspective, and you're bringing in guys from the Sun Belt, it doesn't exactly bode well for what you feel you have coming into this season. And I think that could be a huge red flag for this Florida program on the offensive side of the ball. Defensively, in 2020, Florida was terrible on the defensive side of the ball. In 2021, they were average. If they want to compete for an SEC title, certainly winning the East and competing against the likes of Georgia or at this point stepping up and shutting down teams like Tennessee, they're going to have to get back to that elite level defensively like we have come to expect out of Florida over the years. Now, it's not I don't think that's going to be possible for this season. However, you know, building for the future, we could see it. But they do have some talented players on the defensive side of the ball. They have Ventrell Miller, who returns at inside linebacker for a sixth year after being banged up last year. I feel like he literally has been at Florida forever. But you, 
it's good to have an experienced signal caller on that defense in the middle, so that's encouraging. Pass rusher Brenton Cox, the former Georgia Bulldog and one of the most vocal players uh, with his disdain for the Georgia program on the message boards and everything else, uh, returns at edge. He has the skills and size to produce double-digit sacks, but again, just has never really kind of lived up to that billing. Jervon Dexter, I think, is the best defensive player that they have. Uh, he plays interior defensive line. He's an absolute load up front, and he, he needs to be the centerpiece of this Gators defense to build around him. The problem is, is the depth in that front seven and that linebacker core is also still very uh, thin, and I think this is going to be a defensive unit you're going to be able to run on. The growth in the secondary has to come. I mean, if, if, if Florida does not take a step forward in the secondary, I think that this defense could go from average back swinging back into the direction of bad. They do have a sophomore corner in Jason Marshall Jr. I think this guy could be a special player. They have Georgia transfer Jalen Kimber, who was a very highly rated guy that the dogs were really high on. Just couldn't crack the roster immediately like he wanted to in Athens, so he transferred to Florida. I don't think that makes him a bad player or anything, but he is recovering from shoulder surgery, but I think he could be a steal for this Gators team. They do have a safety in fifth-year senior Trey Dean, the third. Uh, he's a three-year starter and adds some more continuity back there. Rashad Torrance is another very dependable guy in that uh, secondary. They do have four-star recruit Kamari Wilson, who could be impactful as well. So it's. I think the secondary for Florida could be sort of feast or famine. If everything gels, they certainly have a ton of talent back there. But if it doesn't, it could be a little bit of a shit show here in 2022. So now that we have kind of talked about the offense and the defense and sort of previewed a little bit of what the Gators have coming into this year. Let's talk about this seven and a half game win total. This is a pretty confident under for me, and it has a lot to do with the schedule. When we take a look at this, September the 3rd, they host Utah at 7 p.m. in the swamp. And now Utah, a team out of the Pac-12 that is, I, I'm very high on them from a Pac-12 perspective. I like them to win that conference. Nationally, right, because I do believe you have to be able to see the nuance here. You have to be able to see the nuance because college football is not as homogenized as these NFL rosters are. There is a lot more variance, a lot more volatility factor, especially when you're playing conference versus conference. So Utah, even being like a Pac-12 championship caliber team, I believe would solidly be sort of a mid-tier team, maybe an upper, upper third team in the SEC. And the empirical evidence I kind of have for this is if you were to go back a couple of years, Auburn and Oregon met in neutral site action in Arlington, Texas. Oregon lost that game to Auburn on a couple of some last minute heroics, but it was really what made the difference was Auburn's play in the trenches and the physicality and the depth they were able to rotate in against that Oregon squad. Oregon would go on to win the Pac-12 that year. Auburn would go on to finish fifth in the SEC and go eight and four. So that's my point is when you have a conference that is loaded with blue chip talent the way that the SEC is, that doesn't just go away. You know, and not only that, it's gonna be a really tough environment for Utah to come into. Making the trip across the country, that heat, that humidity, the electric atmosphere that will absolutely be there because it's early in the year. It's the first game. It's the debut. It's everything else. I have that game at an even push because of that. Should Utah win that game? Yes, they should. Will they win that game? I don't know. I have that as a toss-up. However, going back to something we said a little bit earlier about the Gators, their depth, their lack of depth up front, I should say, in their front seven, I said was concerning. Their lack of depth at the linebacker position is concerning. And when you are talking about a matchup style nightmare, Utah could be that with their back in Tavion Thomas, who is an absolute monster at 245 pounds. They come out with a lot of 12 and 13 personnel. They will get physical with you. Now, again, it's Pac-12 physical. We'll see if it holds up against this SEC roster 
in the swamp, but if they are able to lean on this Florida Gators squad and take them into deeper waters, the depth of that Utah team could be very problematic. But I will actually have this as a toss-up. However, at, coming off of that game the next week, September the 10th, Kentucky comes to town, and you're stacking two very physical, physical rosters back-to-back -back at that point. Kentucky wants to lean on that ground game. Again, I think Florida is going to be a team that you're going to be able to run on. So I have them losing that one. They'll get a win against South Florida. I'm very confident of that on September 17th when they host them. They have to take a trip to Tennessee. I have them losing that game. Eastern Washington comes to town. They'll win that one. Missouri comes to town and plays them. I believe they'll get a win there. LSU coming in to play Florida. I'm not exactly sure which one this way this the, uh, which way this one goes. This is a rivalry game. It could go either way in my opinion. So I do have that as a toss up. But then they have to face off again in neutral site action against Georgia in Jacksonville. I absolutely do not see them beating Georgia on any day and certainly not on this day in this season. They have to take a trip to Texas A&M on November the 5th. I think they get splattered when they take that trip out there. South Carolina could be feisty for them as well. I have that one more in toss-up territory, but because they do host South Carolina and given how difficult the Gamecock schedule is, I'll lean towards a win there for them. I think they get the win against Vanderbilt. The season, to close out the season on November 25th, they take a trip to Florida State, and I think Florida State is hell-bent and absolutely primed on revenge this year. I think Florida State is a better team than Florida this year. I'm, I'm going to come out and say it. I think that they've been building towards you know, this kind of season under the Norvell tenure here, I'm not expecting Florida State to be like world beaters. It's going to go on and win nine or 10 games. But I do think that Florida State is a better team with a better roster than what Florida has going on right now in terms of uh, the depth factor, at least. Again, Florida, just a team that does not have a lot of depth right now. And a lot of their commodities that they do have right now are largely unproven or have not played up to billing. So for seven and a half wins, I am confidently leaning on the under, as I do believe Florida will still make a bowl game. But I think six and six is much more realistic than eight wins for this Florida Gator squad. Let's go to Columbia, South Carolina and talk about the South Carolina Gamecocks, a team that Coach Shane Beamer had playing better ball than a lot of people, to include myself, predicted last year. I thought these guys were going to be absolute dungeon dwellers. I was thinking maybe maybe three or four wins if they were lucky. And lo and behold, they find a way to get six wins and make bowl eligibility and then go whoop North Carolina for a 7-6 and six finish. Oh, and by the way, with pretty much no quarterback to speak of for most of the season, as uh, it was a pretty bad revolving door of quarterbacks there at one point in time, you know, cycling in running backs and wide receivers to play the quarterback position. So very impressed with what Coach Shane Beamer was able to do in his first year. I have to admit when I am wrong, and I was wrong about him and his prowess as a head coach, and he has been building some groundswell around this program in the offseason. They did a very good job in the transfer portal, bringing in a lot of talent to South Carolina, especially on the offensive side of the ball. As we all know, Spencer Rattler, the former Oklahoma quarterback, has landed there. Austin Stogner, the tight end. They have a couple of promising guys at wide receiver returning to the roster. Uh, offensive line could be a cause for concern but a very good secondary as well returns to South Carolina and a couple of defensive pieces that could be pretty good headed into this season. I think what I'm most encouraged about is the fact that given the transfer talent that has come into South Carolina, if you're a Gamecocks fan, we talked about this when we're on our Summer Dreams episodes, the, the floor for the South Carolina team has risen. However, the schedule hasn't 
necessarily gotten any easier. It is still one of the hardest power rated schedules in the country every single year as they always have to take on Georgia. They have their SEC West draw with Texas A&M. They have to play Clemson. They have a tough ass schedule any way you slice it. And two things can be absolutely true at the same time. A team can be better from year one to year two, and the schedule can be harder, and therefore you may not see it express itself in the win and loss column here. So let's talk about this offense with Spencer Rattler, who is, I would think, undoubtedly our our, uh, projected starter moving into the season for the Gamecocks. What they have at the wide receiver positions, uh, an impact tight end like Austin Stogner, we at least may see a more potent offensive attack out of the Gamecocks, which was one of the worst in league play last year. And if we see Spencer able to put up even numbers that were average or even on the lower end of his average, we're talking about, you know, about 2,800 or so passing yards, 24 to 26 touchdown strikes. That is a much more potent offensive attack than what we saw out of them last season. And that's certainly not going to hurt. You know, it can only help. So the Gamecocks returned their entire offensive line as well, but it was a line that produced just six 100-yard rushing games in 13 games. Uh, And that was with the 2020 SEC leading rusher, Kevin Harris. It was one of the worst pass blocking lines as well in the league and gave up 31 sacks. They have to take a step forward this year if they're going to capitalize on Spencer Rattler being there. They also uh, reloaded their running back room with Wake Forest transfer Christian Beale Smith, who's extremely talented back, uh, and they returned Marshawn Lloyd as well a good recruit two years ago who missed his entire first season in 2020 with a torn ACL. And the Gamecocks have other weapons as well. They have a receiver in Josh Van who led the team in catches, yards, and touchdowns, and a tight end in Jaheim Bell who was also a very good contributing factor on this offense. He got two touchdowns in the bowl game, and if he takes a step forward pairing with some of the other incoming transfer talent, we again, could see the offense take a step forward, and that is going to be crucial for them to go back to a bowl game this year. Defensively, South Carolina had one of the best pass defenses in all of the nation last year and actually led the SEC, but it was because nobody actually had to pass on them. Everybody could run. They had a lousy run defense despite having such a vaunted pass defense. And also, they did have a really good knack for taking the ball away. So it was sort of one of those defenses, again, that was kind of wishy-washy, sort of like Tennessee's, right? They did some things well. They did other things really, well, not well, right? 24 combined interceptions or fumble recoveries and that was also an SEC high so at least they did give their offense opportunities which if you again are able to take the ball away uh, and not give it away your success rate for winning football games is much higher that's one of the biggest markers of winning or losing a football game is whether or not you won or lost the turnover battle which explains you know how this team ended up going bowling last year run defense is it was definitely a cause for concern last year and is going to have to take a major step forward coming into this year much like their offensive line play is going to have to get better their defensive line play is going to have to get better as well Jordan Strachan and Jordan Birch are going to have to play at a much higher level this year those are those two interior defensive linemen as well as guys like Zach Pickens and Rick Sandage and Tonka Hemingway are also going to have to step up in the interior of this defense. Sherrod Green is returning from two consecutive years of injuries. Hopefully he can contribute for the Gamecocks and help with six-year senior Brad Johnson uh, to handle the linebacker spots. Again, the secondary returns Cam Smith is one of the SEC's most underrated players, honestly, alongside fellow corner Darius Rush. 
and safety R.J. Roderick. I think all of these guys are actually probably going to get drafted because they do have a very they have an extremely talented secondary. Let's talk schedule for South Carolina, which is always one of the toughest. Caesars has them at five and a half. They open the year September 3rd against Georgia State. They host them. Georgia State, even in their non-con, even in this draw, a team that I think is going to be one of the better teams in the Sun Belt, one of the better and tougher G5 programs, but I do still expect South Carolina to get the win there. Then they have to take a trip to Arkansas on September the 10th. That feels more of a toss-up, but I'm going to lean with the home team in Arkansas on that one because they have to hit the road, obviously. Then they come off of that and they host Georgia. I'm sure they're going to play a very inspired game. Georgia better be ready to play big boy football against South Carolina in Columbia and not allow them to turn that place into an absolute madhouse and give them any kind of hope because I have it as a potential, a small potential, but a potential stumbling block for the dogs. However, I do see them losing that one. They take on Charlotte the week after, and the week after that, they take on South Carolina State. I've got back-to-back wins for them. They take a trip to Kentucky. If that South Carolina run defense isn't much improved, if it looks a lot like last year's, they're going to probably lose to Kentucky. However, if they can bottle up that run game with this secondary, I'm like I've said, I'm still not sold on Will Levis and his ability to really push the ball down the field. And if they put Kentucky in a position where they have to rely on their pass game, I could see them getting the upset there in Lexington. So, you know what? Let's let's actually let's lean that one towards a a win for South Carolina. Let's chalk it up. Let's let's live dangerously. But the week after that, they do have to take on their SEC West draw or one of them in uh, Texas A&M. And I think they will lose that game, seeing as how Texas A&M just has a much more talented roster than South Carolina has right now. They will host Missouri. I think they get a win there. I think they get the win against Vanderbilt. I see them losing in the swamp, having to take a trip into Florida, which that game is always pretty spirited. Florida gets up for that one a lot. So I could see them losing that one. I do not see them beating Tennessee, and I do not see them uh, beating Clemson in the Palmetto Bowl at the end of the year. So for this five-and-a-half game win total that Caesars has, I'm actually inclined to take the over as I do see South Carolina going bowling again. Like I said, two things can be true at once. This South Carolina team can be better than last year's, and the schedule can be just that much you know, that much more, a little bit ticked up in the difficulty, it kind of all evens out. And I, I think in terms of wins and losses, this South Carolina team will be probably dead spot on with where they were last year. We're starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel here. And uh, unlike summer dreams where I talked about the positives for teams, uh, now is the time where we start to expose the negatives for certain teams. So we are going to talk about the Missouri Tigers at this point, unfortunately, and what their 2022 season looks like now not having Connor Bazelak, losing Tyler Beatty, who is absolutely sensational for them, returning a run defense is just god-freaking-awful. Um, and just a lot of holes on this very sort of untalented roster that uh, I don't think is going to bode well for them coming into 2022. I am not extremely familiar with this roster. I do know that they landed a very, in my opinion, sort of unexpected recruit in Luther Burden, five-star wide receiver from Missouri. I thought that he would land, and I'm still of the opinion he'll eventually transfer to a better team for a shot at winning a championship because he is that level and that caliber of player. So he can be, I think he could be a difference maker for them coming into this year. Uh, But again, I don't know who's going to throw to him. If they can keep people protected, the trench play, the run game, it's just a bunch of question marks for Missouri. What I do know is that the schedule that they play is not going to be easy for them given the amount of or I should say the lack of talent that's on this team. So Caesars has these guys also sitting solidly at five and a half wins, which I think is optimistic and actually pretty damn generous. 
Taking a look at the schedule on September 1st, they play Louisiana Tech, which I believe will be a win. Then they have a tough, a sneaky tough road trip out to Kansas State on September the 10th. I believe Kansas State is actually going to be a pretty good team this year. And given the style matchup with what Kansas State is going to want to do offensively with Deuce Vaughn and Adrian Martinez, I think you're going to see a team that can run the ball pretty well. And I don't see Missouri's run defense taking some quantum leap towards being much better than last year. So I think they lose that contest. They take on, I don't know even know what this team is. It's a like a little... FCS team says ACU maybe Al it could be Alcorn State I don't know who it is but anyway they play some high school team on September 17th they should get a win there obviously then they have to take a trip to Auburn Auburn another team I'm not very high on this year however there is a stark difference in the amount of talent that Auburn has on the roster versus Missouri and they're playing at home against a team that they I think they are going to be able to get a win against and looking to do so and it may be in that stretch of the of the year where Auburn still cares their their losses at that point haven't really stacked up um, so I, I like them I like Auburn to win that one so Missouri takes another L Georgia comes to town they undoubtedly take an L Going, uh, you know, they have to go on the road to Florida. I think they take the loss there. Vanderbilt, I do see as a win for Missouri, but again, probably a harder fight than Missouri fans would like to admit or, you know, like to see for sure. Even though they host Vanderbilt, I could see that one being a pretty spirited contest as that very well could be the only chance for either one of those squads to get an SEC win. Uh, but I do like Missouri. I'll tip my cap to Missouri in that one to get the win at home. They have to take a trip to South Carolina. I could see a situation where potentially they catch South Carolina napping, but I again, I've, I'm thinking it's an L for them. I think they lose to Kentucky. They lose to Tennessee. And um, so, yeah, they do have one more chance at a win against New Mexico State on November 19th. I think they will get that win. Obviously, they're hosting them. They finish off the year by hosting Arkansas on November 25th. I think Arkansas will get that win. So, for me, I am predicting one SEC win as the Missouri Tigers go 4-8. and eight. And that is my official prediction here on Any Given You. So, I am locking up the under 5.5 for the Missouri Tigers. And that leaves us with one last one in the SEC East. And we all know who that is. That would be our beloved Vanderbilt Commodores, the team everybody loves to beat. It's poo-poo time, folks. It's going to get ugly. Um, okay, so Caesars has them at 2.5 wins for the season to be honest with you with this Vanderbilt Commodore squad who should be led by quarterback Ken Seals who last year turnovers were an issue obviously uh, size was an issue speed was an issue overall talent in general was an issue um, this team has not been recruited in an SEC fashion with SEC caliber players, and they unfortunately play in the SEC. They just have not been. Now, I will say, and we talked about this on Summer Dreams, that Vanderbilt actually recruited quite well in this last cycle, bringing in the number 34 overall recruiting class, um, signing a ton of recruits that have a lot of length and size and strength, and you can tell that they're trying to beef up the trenches, add a little bit of uh, size and athleticism to that roster. And I think Clark Lee and uh, general manager Barton Simmons have actually done a really good job at that, bringing in what the future talent for Vanderbilt could look like. I think that the future is much brighter than the present reality, however. As taking a look at this schedule, they start off with a brutal trip to Hawaii on August 27th with a 10.30 p.m., Eastern time kickoff. And uh, although Hawaii is not what I would call a powerhouse by any stretch of the imagination and not a very good team in their own right, that is one heck of a home field advantage. And hosting an SEC team able to get an SEC quote unquote win on their schedule there for the Warriors, I could see Hawaii playing a spirited contest and handing Vanderbilt a loss in that one. You have to remember last year, Vanderbilt was in an absolute 
knockdown drag out tooth and nail dogfight with UConn which is easily 2021 UConn is easily one of the worst teams like of all time so uh, you know they barely got the win there I, I don't have that as a lockup win then they take on FCS opponent Elon they host them on September the 3rd. I'm going to give Vanderbilt the edge and the win in that one. Then they have to play Wake Forest on September the 10th. I like Wake in that one. They take a trip to the to the MAC to play Northern Illinois, a team that was actually pretty dang good last year, went bowling, uh, and returns a lot to that roster on both sides of the ball. And I think that they are actually better than what Vanderbilt might be showing up with. So I have that one as a toss-up. Then, obviously, they play Alabama. That's a loss. Ole Miss, that's a loss. Uh, They play Georgia. They're losing. Missouri could be a knockdown dragout, but the problem is, is if you look at the schedule, they're playing Alabama, Ole Miss, and Georgia back-to-back-to-back. By the time they make it through that gauntlet, they might not even be healthy enough to really finish the season. Then they got a knockdown dragout against, you know, Missouri, obviously, who I'm giving the edge in that competition to Missouri because they're hosting them. So I think they lose there. I think they lose when South Carolina comes to town. I think they get demolished by Kentucky, physically dominated by that team. I think they lose to Florida. I'm very uh, confident in that assumption. And then they're probably going to get torched by Tennessee at the end of the year. So I'm looking at maybe two wins that I could say with confidence on this schedule, mainly because I just don't think they have the talent or the depth, and I don't think they're going to be healthy by late September by the time they get through, uh, you know, that game with Alabama, excuse me, uh, certainly heading into the month of October. I mean, I, I don't even think this team's going to be healthy. I don't even know what the roster is going to look like by the time they hit the mid-stretch of their uh, conference play. So I'm locking up the under for Vanderbilt at two and a half, I think it's more likely they go one and eleven, two and ten. I honestly, be- I honestly really do think that zero and twelve is actually more likely than three wins in this scenario. So give me the under on the Vanderbilt Commodores. I wanted to get all this done in under an hour. I just missed. We're at an hour and three minutes and counting. So. That does it for SEC East win totals tonight, folks. I certainly appreciate you hanging out with me here at any given you. Remember, get over to Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star rating and review if you're enjoying the content. And I certainly hope that these previews and predictions help you, you know, have a better idea of what to expect here in 2022 out of these teams. And remember, any given time, any given place, any given team, you get it here at any given you.